How might schools better serve and support students, especially during this time of great destabilization? Today in the show, I speak with Dr. Rob Simon. I'm your host, Celeste Kirsch, and we are Teaching Tomorrow. Dr. Simon is an associate professor at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education at the University of Toronto in their Department of Curriculum, Teaching and Learning. I asked Rob on the show to speak about the Addressing Injustices project. In this conversation, we get into the Addressing Injustices team and how they use youth participatory action research to affect change. But we also explore teacher education the field of multiliteracies, and this concept of productive discomfort, which I honestly had not really considered before this interview. I copied out many, many quotes while listening to this episode when I was editing it, so this might be the one that you have a pen and paper handy as you are listening. Dr. Simon is a generous, thoughtful, and deeply collaborative thinker in education that will gently nudge you towards thinking about education in a different way. Let's get right into it with Dr. Rob Simon. Rob Simon, I'm so excited to get to talk to you and have you for about an hour to just pick your brain. I've been looking forward to this conversation for so long. So thank you. It's an honor to get to speak with you today. Thank you so much, Celeste. I'm really happy to be in conversation with you. I always start with uh, the guests introducing themselves. So can you start by saying who you are, where you live and what you do? Okay, um, my name is Rob Simon. Um, I'm currently on faculty at University of Toronto. I teach at Boise in the Department of Curriculum Teaching and Learning. I'm actually currently Associate Chair of Student Experience there, though that's a temporary role. My real job is, is teaching and learning with uh, students, with students in our Master of Teaching program. I, I'm a teacher educator and working with folks who are interested in doing research in the world um, in their classrooms, practitioner research, in communities alongside students. And uh, I also focus in literacy education. You have many hats and you have a very unique vantage point in education because you work with incoming teachers, you get to do research at a higher level, you get to work at OISE. From your perspective, how would you define the moment that we're all currently in, in education? It's like none that I've ever experienced, I think is the answer. Um, and I would say that's probably true for all of us. Uh, there's really nothing quite like this in our lifetime. At the same time, I think that this particular moment has highlighted some kinds of inequities in our lives in the world and in schools in particular that many people have been keenly aware of for many, many years. Um, there simply are unequal opportunities and supports in place for students in schools. Um, I was socialized into the field as a teacher. You know, I started a small school for mostly court-involved youth called Life Learning Academy. I didn't start it on my own. I was a founding teacher with a community of folks involved with an organization called Delancey Street Foundation in San Francisco, um, a self-help rehab facility for um, adult offenders and former drug abusers. And we were a part of an overhaul of the juvenile justice system. This was one of a number of programs that, that we started. And Life Learning Academy was started for kids that had been really failed, disenfranchised by traditional schools. They'd been kicked out or dropped out or forced out 
um, of every school in San Francisco Unified School District. And I learned in the process of working with young people like this, that they were often blamed as individuals for what are systemic problems. Um, you know, and that's, uh, I think, a pattern that many of us who have spent our time in classrooms would, would recognize. Um, and all children have the capacity to be brilliant. So what can schools do to better serve and support them? That's really our job as, as educators. I think this particular moment, to get back to your question, I think has sharpened and maybe highlighted some of those inequalities in certain kinds of ways. I think that many folks who are otherwise privileged and have enjoyed easier access and better supports, an easier sort of um, connection between the discourses and languages and ways of communicating that we might have at home and what's expected of us in schools, we have all experienced some kinds of disruption in our lives. And for many of us, that's been traumatic, low level or even high level trauma. Um, and so I'm, I'm hoping that this is, while this has been a difficult moment, that it's also a moment that is ripe with some kinds of opportunities going forward, you know, so that we, we don't fall back into the mistakes that we've made, at least in my lifetime as a teacher, um, but that we recognize this sort of essential humanity of the children in our classrooms and our role as sort of nurturing their well-being, not just their learning. Um, so I see this as a complicated moment, but also a moment with some kinds of possibility for change. Yeah, it's a moment of awakening, I think, for many educators to sort of see that what's happening to our most vulnerable students is happening across the board, but just in different ways. And I, I think that the way that you named that of we're looking at equity issues in education through a new lens now, which is really important. I'm going to pivot towards the work that you're doing with addressing injustices, because that's a great little shift point. Because when I when I learned about your work through Dr. Gallagher, Dr. Kathleen Gallagher, I just became obsessed with reading everything that you did. And Addressing Injustices is a wonderful resource for educators that I'm going to link in the show notes. But for those people who aren't obsessed with you, like I am, uh, tell people a little bit about Addressing Injustices. What, is it, what does it do? And really specifically, what does it mean for curriculum to be a vehicle for change? First and foremost, I appreciate your, your comments, Celeste, but first and foremost, addressing injustices is very much not about me, but about mm -hmm. a community of young people and teachers across a professional lifespan from student teachers in my classes at OISE to teachers that are, that are working um, and many of them had many years of experiences working in schools in, in the greater Toronto area, coming together to think together, um, explore issues in the world that matter to us through the text that we read and find creative ways of expressing our understandings of social justice. Um, so it is a kind of collaborative research and teaching community that we've created. Um, it's very intergenerational. We work with grade eight students predominantly from uh, Toronto District School Board School, Delta Alternative. Um, and those students come into conversation with teacher candidates in my classes at OISE. Um, we read texts like Beautiful Music for Ugly Children, which is a book that explores the experiences of a trans teenager coming out to his family and friends, um, or Mouse by Art Spiegelman, um, the Holocaust memoir. 
And we use these books as sort of starting points for conversations about social justice issues. Um, and it's an opportunity for, for me to view my teaching of teachers as really a chance to learn alongside them from possibly the youngest teacher educators in Canada. You know, these are 13, 14 year old people um, that know a tremendous amount about the world and they know a tremendous amount about what works and what doesn't work from, from their perspective about school. Um, so, you know, I, I believe strongly and I think it's a, a founding practice or a founding sort of belief in the, in the Addressing Injustices Project that every individual is positioned to know something about the world. They have a kind of epistemically rich and significant location um, that they speak and, and learn from. And so this is a chance for us to sort of learn across these differences of, of age and location. Um, so each year of, the, of addressing injustices, we take up a text, as I said, mouse, beautiful music, um, among others, and um, find all kinds of creative work to make of that. Most of this comes from our research team who are made up of teachers and artists and the young people in the communities who continually surprise us with their creativity and their criticality and um, engagement and investment and care. Um, so on our website, which thank you so much for sharing with, with your listeners, um, you'll get a sense of just the breadth of kinds of ways that young people find to express themselves um, from short films and digital stories to arts installations and paintings. Um, they're examples of found poetry and a whole host of different kinds of, of uh, ways that they've been exploring um, and addressing injustices in our work together. You asked this question about curriculum and I think many of us, and this is probably true in your experience as a teacher, you know, I, as I mentioned, I was a classroom teacher for many, many years in San Francisco. And I thought of curriculum as kind of a stable document, you know, typically something that was designed by other people and, you know, was handed to me that I had to do something with. And if I really wanted to do something radical, I would shut my door and hope that I wasn't, I wasn't caught. <laughs> um, but in our work, we view, we view curriculum as a sort of living, breathing thing. It's something that we reimagine alongside young people. Um, and so when you're asking about the question about um, how curriculum can be a, ve a vehicle of change, I think it's a starting point is viewing curriculum as malleable, hmm. blurring the lines between, as I already said, research and practice, but also between young people and adult perspectives um, between education and activism, between learning and teaching. So we are all of us sort of destabilized in some way that can be a baseline for a kind of productive discomfort that, that hopefully leads to some kind of, it's a catalyst for some kind of change, both in the classroom and hopefully extending into the world in some kinds of ways. It really feels like when I was reading about the work that you're doing with teacher candidates and students, it really feels like you are leveling the playing field a little bit so that it's not a teacher in charge of the curriculum and students are doing what the teacher has planned out, but rather it's 
allowing teacher and student to be exploring text together. Like I think there was a quote somewhere in one of the films saying, I didn't actually know who the teacher was in this conversation because we were all kind of just sitting around a table talking about the text. I'm, I want to know more about the decision to include teacher candidates in this work, because I know a lot of researchers will go in and observe teachers and observe students. Was it always clear to you that teacher candidates needed to be part of this process or where did that choice come from? I'm curious to hear about the background there. So one of my, one of my dear friends in Philadelphia, she was a lifelong committed high school teacher, um, retired after 30 years in the classroom. And I said to her, how does this feel? I mean, you, you know, 30 years, she said, I was just getting good. Yeah. And yeah. I think about that comment often because I think there's been a kind of lie that's been perpetrated against all of us, all of us educators, that there is a category of pre-service and that's occupied by novices who really don't know what they're doing. And they need to learn from folks that are on the other side of that line, you know, in-service teachers who are somehow expert. And the more time that you spend in the classroom, the more expert you become. The less time you spend in the classroom, the less expertise that you have. And so that expert novice distinction is something that I strongly resist. Because in my experience, as I said, a 13 year old student could know more about globalization than I do. They, might, they may speak two or three different home languages. They may have traveled and you know, encountered a whole host of experiences that they bring to our conversations. They live gender in ways that are unfamiliar to me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The whole host of human experience that young people bring to us. This is very much true of 23, 27, 32 year old teacher candidates some of whom who have many years of teaching experience that they bring into those classrooms. I have had you know, teacher candidates that actually have more years of classroom experience than I have as a teacher educator because they may have taught internationally, they may have taught in college contexts, adult learning contexts, language schools, et cetera. They also work in early childhood education and other kinds of, other kinds of capacities in the education system. So that expert novice distinction is something that, that I'd like to sort of trouble um, because I believe we all learn to teach across a professional lifespan and that our disposition toward teaching, um, if we take a kind of learning stance or what my, what my dear friend Susan Lytle would call an inquiry stance toward our classrooms, we are always learning. And maybe 30 years down the road, if we're lucky, we can retire and say, I was just getting good, mm. like my friend. So for me as a teacher educator, I wanna make instructively problematic what that teacher education experience is like. So no one in my class can come out of that experience thinking that I'm an expert and they're coming into my class to sort of be filled up in some kind of Frarian sense of the word. You know, they're empty vessels for my expert knowledge. I'm gonna give them the seven or 12 things that all teachers need to know to be good. Um, and rather, we're going to learn alongside one another, as I said previously, and we disrupt some of that by bringing in other teachers and young people into our classroom and also getting out of our classroom at the university because a lot of the addressing injustices work that we do happens in the world or it happens in school. So we may be going to the AGO to, 
to go to an art exhibit with you know 60 teachers and young people or we may be in delta at, at the the um, intermediate school in our participating teachers classroom sort of you know learning with them in their space and so that disrupts i think some of the idea that there is this time before teaching where you get all the things you need to know to be a good teacher um and i hope it's done in helpful ways you know i think that I always feel like when someone asks me if my class went well, I think you're asking the wrong person. Um, and I imagine that all of the people, um, teenagers and adults alike, would share different perspectives with you if you were to ask them what was meaningful, what was most meaningful, or what was most difficult for them about participating in this process with us. Did you get any feedback from teachers once they entered the profession? Like, have you ever heard back from people that have entered their professional service and come back and said, like, that changed who I was as a teacher? I, I do. You know, there are, there are a number of folks that I'm still in touch with. Um, I will say, you know, one of my frustrations as a teacher educator and as a researcher, I would add, um, is that there is this very intensive time. Now we, in our master teaching program, it's a two-year program, as you may know. Um, but like the Bachelor of Education program that um, you know, many people attended at OIZ for many, many years, um, you know, it's a, it, people come through, it's very intensive, and then they leave. And a handful of people stay connected, but the program doesn't really support intergenerational Kind of connection and communication and bringing people back in the way that I'd like to see, I think. Um, we don't even really collect data on where people go and how they're, you know, thriving or not thriving as classroom teachers. Um, a number of folks do stay in touch. Uh, we have written articles with teachers and young people, you know, students that we've worked with um, and done presentations with them. And folks do occasionally reach out and say, you know, I just, want, I just wanted to get in touch and tell you how much this meant to me. Um, they may be teaching a book that we talked about together, maybe a particular moment with a particular student. Most recently, one of my former students got in touch with me and she reached out to me and just said, you know, I was just so, so excited to, she actually met my son and she was so excited to meet my son. She wanted to tell me, you know, how much that time in her life meant to her and, and how much that class meant to her. Um, that's always lovely to hear. I'm sure that there are other feelings in that as well, because <laughs> um, teacher education is complicated. Yeah. You know, and I'm very, I'm very aware of that, and all the pressures that, that uh, teacher candidates are under, so. I'm gonna go back to some of the work that you're doing with addressing injustices, and I'm gonna quote you back to yourself, so I hope that's not too weird, but you said in an interview, we learned in previous years that it was important to give students the space and time they needed to process their responses to texts like mouse. Too often in classrooms, we feel compelled by shortages of time and resources, outside pressures or expectations. We march students through the curriculum rather than allow our experiences with text to breathe. We're in the middle of a pandemic. People are teaching longer hours. It's a difficult time right now. And even just in my own practice, that idea of like marching people through a curriculum really resonates, especially in this time where it feels hard to be creative. In your vantage point, what do you see teachers doing now to help create that space to fully process 
really powerful text. Do you think that's even possible in this chapter that we're in? Mm. It's, it's such a good question, Celeste, and I really appreciate it. <laughs> it's a question I'm gonna sit with. I'm gonna do my best to answer it, but I think it's something that I'm gonna sit with for some time. Um, I'm reminded of something that a teacher educator of mine said many years ago, that whether or not you teach 16 students or 60 students, you teach in the same way. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking about that, that um, there are these sorts of fundamental aspects of being with others in classroom spaces, how we regard them and their humanity, what, what we think it is we're doing when we pick up a book and say we're teaching this or pick up a curriculum and say, this is my, my task or our task over the next several weeks. I think that first and foremost, teachers need to teach people first, not texts first. Attend to what's immediately in front of you. Who's in the room? Now that sort of fundamental sort of orientation toward teaching, that's something I think that good teachers bring to in-person and online learning. Now, that's not to say that there aren't some real impediments, including the shared experience of trauma and you know, the, the, the frustration and the limitations of each of us being now little bubbles in a Hollywood Squares classroom as opposed to actually sitting alongside each other shoulder to shoulder. But I think that before, before thinking about what's you know, wrong or what's missing or what teachers are doing well or not doing well now, I, I, would, I, just, I guess I'd wanna say, I don't think that what we had before was so perfect. So as we mourn the loss of being in classrooms and spaces together, which we should, we also shouldn't think that we had it solved. And now the pandemic is the problem. Everyone's experiencing trauma, as we said. Everyone is experiencing something that's destabilizing and uncertain. If we attend to who's immediately in front of us, who's in the room with us or who's in the virtual space with us, that means that we notice things, for example, like, for instance, students are inviting us into their homes. So. That's something that I found um, a helpful reorientation when I was when I was first. I had never taught online before this year. Mm-hmm. When I first taught my first graduate seminar online, and I realized I am actually seeing my students' homes for the first time. I have 24 people in the room with me, and each of them is trusting me with some corner of their lives. And that may be a cat that runs across the desk or a, a picture that's very meaningful to them that's on the wall behind them, or a child that comes and crawls up in their lap. So we are still living, breathing people in bodies, in homes, in spaces that are meaningful to us. And once we recognize that, that sort of core human connection that we have to make, even online, we're at a different, I think, I think more meaningful, more caring place, starting point. Mm. So then when we move forward to say sort of what are the kinds of ways that teachers can help students to, I don't know, have the space or have the supports to process whatever the curriculum is, starting with them, the texts of their lives is always a better starting point. The text of whatever the the curriculum of the moment is um, should build from the curriculum of their lives. 
And there should be some kind of, um, I don't know, coextensive relationship between those things. And I see teachers in all kinds of ways um, finding creative, powerful, and, and I hope meaningful ways to make those kinds of connections with students, even in spite of, and in some cases because of our shared experience of frustration and, and upset. There's a way that that sort of, you know, I don't mean this entirely, but there's a kind of leveling of a playing field that I think is helpful. It helps us get alongside students, it helps us see ourselves not as the opposite side of a teacher's desk with all of our students out there and us with the curriculum in front of us. Um, so that I, think is, that I think is something that many teachers are finding, I hope, in addition to being exhausting and frustrating and difficult as opportunities to build connection, to recognize the humanity of children and care for them as, as people, you know, not just learners on some kind of quintile or, or grade scale. Yeah, I feel like in the first, this is really the first time where teachers and students can fully empathize with all of the challenges that we're experiencing collectively. And obviously there are unique experiences that a student will have that a teacher cannot fully understand. But I think that that empathy piece for all people in the classroom just goes up. Like there was one class I was teaching where I literally like both boys were having a meltdown and I was able to say to my students, like, this is what it is. This is what's happening. And, you know, I don't think that they would ever really get to see that side of me as a teacher. And then we had this really great moment of connection. Like there's still, there's still things that they don't need to understand about the struggles of a teacher during a pandemic. But I think that there is, there's more shared knowledge about the barriers that we all face right now. I really liked reading in some of your work about how you're working in the realm of multi-literacies. You know, when you were reading Mouse with your students and they were working through the text by creating pieces of art, how do you find exploring texts with an artistic or a non-literary way, how do you find that that supports or challenges or enhances the way students understand that text? So, I was hired into a job with the title Assistant Professor of Multiliteracies in Education. So when I saw that job posted, I've, I've been at University of Toronto at Boise for 11 years. I saw that job posted and I thought, I just love that there's a world where a job with that title exists. I'm not exactly sure what that means. <laughs> though I have read a bit about multiliteracies I wasn't exactly sure what was understood, what multiliteracies was understood to be from the institutional perspective. Multiliteracies is a term that was coined by the New London Group, a group of scholars in the 1990s who came together from a whole host of different research and teaching disciplines and perspectives from critical literacy to multimodality. And they used the term multiliteracies to name several different changes that they noticed in the world and in the field of teaching. One was the increasing linguistic and ethnic and cultural diversity in students. And the other was the changing nature of literacy. So the ways that literacy was becoming more multimodal, more um, shaped by technology, and was taking on different kinds of practices in people's lives. Meanwhile, classrooms were still much as they had been. 
you know, the, the great books were still being taught, the, the junior canon that was taught in my grandfather's time in high school was very similar to what I learned when I was in high school. And some of those titles are still in book closets and classrooms today. Not that they shouldn't be read, but that there was a kind of, kind of intransigence in, in schools that was not necessarily responsive to the multiplicity and changing nature of literacy in the world. So fast forward some number of years, multiliteracies in education becomes a kind of blank canvas for people to project all of their ideas of what multiliteracies might be. For many people, and in many school districts, multiliteracies has something to do with technology. So we are doing multiliteracies when we were reading The Great Gatsby on iPads instead of in books, you know, traditional, traditional paperback books. I don't really buy that. I think that reading, writing, performing, um, engaging with ideas in classrooms has always been multimodal, meaning it draws on a full range of sensory experience. It's just we limit ourselves in terms of what we look for and what we expect and what we assess that experience. So we're not interested in the tactile experience or the embodied experience of reading. We're not necessarily even interested in the performed experience of reading. We're only interested in the ideas mm. and the ways that those are written down or expressed in writing. So by exploding some of these expectations, we open up the full range of possibilities for the ways that students experience the world, right? Text and context. And what we learn is that a feeling can actually be critical, that a performance can actually be substantive and, and um, analytic, that an artwork can actually be a, a textual expression. Um, and we've created all different kinds of approaches to maybe interrupting traditional understandings of texts, including cutting them up. You know, one of the first projects that we did in the Addressing Injustices Project, at the time it was called the Teaching to Learn Project, we took the Holocaust memoir, Night, by Elie Wiesel, Holocaust survivor and Nobel laureate, and um, we chopped it up and we invited students to paint on the book pages. We did an installation that we called After Night of those artworks, and we wrote about that. We created a short film called After Night about that and found all different kinds of ways of presenting and performing our experiences of the text. It actually took me two years before I, I could write Ellie Wiesel and say, we cut up your book because as, as someone who is a grandchild of Holocaust survivors, I think there was something that was, I mentioned being comfortable with discomfort, but it was very destabilizing. I imagine this, this person survived Kristallnacht and the Holocaust and I chopped up his story mm. about it, um, which was a lot for me to kind of take in. But in the process of doing that, we undo the kind of reverence that we're supposed to have for a text. So the text is no longer on a pedestal where we have to revere it and we have to demonstrate that we know what it means, what the author meant when he wrote it, et cetera. We take it down off the pedestal and we invite it to be a part of our lives and it becomes the material, literally, figuratively, with which we perform our understandings. Um, we have done that in lots of different ways going forward. Literally cutting up texts, for example, we created 
a collection of poetry called Free 451 out of um, Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451. Um, we turned the entire book into whiteout poems or erasure poems. And we have used the books, not just literally, but often as just starting points for a whole host of creative projects. So to get back to your question about multiliteracies, multiliteracies is one way of naming that multiplicity of ways of performing and presenting and creating with texts and in response to texts. I don't know if it's the best one or the most satisfying one. Oh, and I doubt that it's the one that uh, young people in our project would choose um, if, they were, if they were asked, what, what word would you use to describe this experience? But um, you know, it's certainly, certainly a big part of the, of the work that we do. In terms of the question that you asked about learning, because I think that that was the second part of this, how does this enhance student learning? I mentioned how we teach teachers and teacher education to learn across a, pre a professional lifespan. So taking an inquiry stance in their practices. I think similarly, we are teaching kids, we are inviting kids into some kinds of meaningful engagements with texts in our classrooms mm -hmm. in the hopes that they view reading, writing, making, performing as a exciting part as a generative part of their own lives as human beings. We're not trying to get them to understand the five things they need to know about Shakespeare or about Ray Bradbury or Elie Wiesel or any of the writers that we're dealing with. We're trying to help them to understand their own agency as writers, readers, performers, makers, etc. And that regardless of whether they end up like I ended up in a teacher education classroom or like you ended up in an English classroom, that they will view literature as a part of their lives. They will view ideas and performance, art as a part of their lives, and it will deepen their experience. They will, they will become more interested in the world, hopefully, and more interesting to others. Mm. And so that's, I think, what those engagements are intended to invite. Um, I think when I think about my own experiences as, as a student, the moments that are most memorable setting aside some that are a little traumatic or a little horrible, which we all may be carrying. <laughs> but the moments that are most memorable are the times when something unexpected and amazing and exciting happened in a classroom. And so we try to create the conditions for those kinds of things to happen in our work. And I can't tell you which of those things are most exciting or memorable for the children that are part of our project, the young people. Um, but I hope each of them has something that they take from that that is, that is meaningful to them. That's amazing. It really makes me rethink, well, what's the purpose of reading books in school in the first place? Like, what is our larger goal? It's to get young people to see reading and language and literate behaviors as part of their life as they grow up. And that, that's how you do it, by being playful by surprising them by creating novel experiences pun totally intended but that you can bring playfulness into it that's so powerful we're going to transition to the ticket out the door which is just fun random questions to close up we're not letting you get out of here without sharing some silly answers to silly questions are you ready for the okay. ticket out the door All i right. don't know if i'm ready but i'm <laughs> ready Okay, what is your favorite book to read out loud to young people? So I think my favorite book to read out loud is Audrey and Rich. 
Amazing. I think I think Adrian Rich's poems. I yes. love reading out loud with young people and student teachers. What is the best gift you ever received as a teacher? I remember thinking that my best gift as a teacher was when students in my classroom, when I was a high school teacher, voted me teacher who most changed their lives. Oh, that's which great. was a word, an award that didn't exist. They actually made it up. And I thought, I can't imagine any more beautiful thing than to have people that you care about say they care about you or that your time together has been meaningful, so. Mm, that is perfect. What is the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? First thing I do when I wake up in the morning these days is do a crossword and do yoga. Amazing answer, yes. What is the last thing you do before you go to bed? The last thing I do before I go to bed I read a lot of comics these days, so I'm probably I'm probably reading, but I've been curating film festivals for myself. So I've been watching lately a lot of film noir and a, a great series from 1960s called Soul, which is a celebration of African-American cultural experience. It is just so inspiring to me. So I'm, I'm either reading a comic book or watching an old film or an episode of Soul these days. Amazing. Pie or cake? So I'm gonna I'm gonna change the rules of that question. <laughs> I my German grandmother used to call pies cake. Oh, cool! So, because she would use she would use either the, ter the English term cake, which I think was from the German term shallot. So she would call it apple cake when it was actually apple shallot or apple pie. Yeah. So we used those terms kind of interchangeably. <laughs> One of the pleasures of the pandemic is my. My children have been baking with my parents who both live in the U.S. and we haven't seen them like so many people haven't seen their loved ones in a year. Um, so this weekend, my dad is going to be baking one of my grandmother's recipes with my son, Rami. They're making a, a Linzer tort. Oh, together. so good. I'm not sure if it's pie or cake, but I'm looking forward to that both. on Sunday. Beach or mountains? Beach. Spring Absolutely. or fall? Oh gosh, that's hard. Probably my two favorite seasons. So I'd be hard. It depends what moment of fall, what moment of spring. But I love, I love the first leaves of spring. You and I were sharing our, the joy that you have when the sun comes out after a long winter, and there's nothing quite like that. So I guess I'd have to say that. What would be your last meal on Earth? Boy, is that hard. <laughs> I can't even figure out. <laughs> so. Every Friday these days is takeout night for us. Mm -hmm. so we're cooking every day but Friday. I can't even decide what I want my one takeout meal a week to be. <laughs> but the last meal, the last meal of life is going to be really, that's good, that's gonna be really tough to answer. Um, I don't know, maybe a piece of Linzer tort made by my yeah. son. Yeah. Hopefully that does hopefully that's not the last one this Sunday. But <laughs> oh my God. If you weren't in education, what field do you think you would be in? You know, sometimes I'm in education and I'm, I feel like I'm in a lot of different fields. Mm -hmm. So it's one of the things I love about education that it didn't force me to decide, you know, I am just a Faulkner scholar. Yeah. You know, yeah. I can actually perform all of these different kinds of identities and roles. But I think if I weren't in, if I weren't in education, I imagine I'd be making art somewhere or I'd be 
selling old esoteric things like have a used record store or something like that probably that's perfect and final question is what is the future of learning i can't tell you that Mm. i would i would love to tell you that but i can't tell you that um you know i think one of the one of the most upsetting things i think of the past not just the past year but really the the past six or so years we've seen sort of a a rise of populist nationalism around the world, not merely Trumpism, um, but you know certainly Trump had something to do with it. He became a face of it. Um, we've seen reintransigence of racial and social inequalities, um, and many of the things that I thought we had progressed beyond in my lifetime, I found reasserting themselves. Many of the kinds of injustices that I. Uh, maybe not that we've solved racism, but we've made some kinds of progress. I see how quickly that progress can be dismantled and how deeply that shapes learning. Mm -hmm. So when trans children's human rights are denied them in North Carolina classrooms, they can no longer use the restroom of their choice. We can't talk about the future of learning without thinking about human rights Mm -hmm. and our responsibilities to protect um, protect them and, and to care for them. Um, I hope the future of learning is more socially just, more kind, more equitable and fair. Um, and I imagine it will take shapes that you and I can't possibly anticipate, which speaks to the incredible potentiality and remarkable talents and creative energy of young people who are taking the world in directions that, you know, certainly my parents and grandparents, but even me could never imagine. So I'm looking forward to being along for some of that ride. Mm. It's a great response to that. Just allowing, allowing ourselves to be surprised by what comes and hopefully in a good way, hopefully in the positive way. Thank you for coming and for sharing your brain. Honestly, your, your work, your thinking, your research is really inspiring. And it was such a pleasure to get to talk with you in real time today. Thank you so much, Les. It's really a pleasure to be in conversation with you and your listeners. A big thank you to Dr. Rob Simon for joining me in this conversation today. I'm taking away a few key points from this episode. The first is that curriculum is a malleable thing. It's not just something that I do to my students. I love this idea of taking the stance of a co-learner with my students, especially right now when Everything about hybrid pandemic learning for me feels so new and so unfamiliar. The second takeaway I have is to ask myself what is the purpose of engaging with literature in my classroom? What is my end goal for my students? And for me, that's literate behavior. I need to keep asking myself this question with any reading task that happens in my classroom. The third is what Dr. Rob Simon said when he was saying, I don't think that what we had before was so perfect. You know, like there's this loss of what school is, but there's also this possibility of what school might become after this pandemic. And when I'm stuck in that moment of, oh, this is so hard, just to remind myself that there is something else on the other end of this. For those of you that are inspired and want to read more about Dr. Simon and his research, he just published a book, Teaching Literature to Adolescents. Listeners of the show get 30% of this title, and you can get the link to that very sweet deal in the show notes. That's all the time we have for today, folks. 
keep trying to take an inquiry stance. And remember, we are teaching tomorrow.